how do you know that the equipment you're purchasing is legit? How do you find previous residents of the homes that you're investigating? Once you find them, how do you get them to open up to you about the hauntings and the horrors sometimes that they experienced in those homes? The answers to those questions and more on this listener question episode. Advice from the pros. From the pros. Stories from the haunted. From the haunted. You're listening to the Ghost Hunter Advice Podcast. Welcome back to the Ghost Hunter Advice Podcast. I'm your host, Tanner Rutledge, and on today's episode, we're doing our second listener questions episode. Thank you guys so much for uh, interacting with the show, sending us your questions, and uh, just being so active in the Facebook group and uh, through Messenger and, and email. If you have a question, if you're listening to the show right now, we haven't covered a topic and you want to know something, email me at ghosthunteradvice at gmail.com. It doesn't matter if you're a ghost hunter, if you're someone who is going through and experiencing a haunting or experiencing paranormal activity, we're here to help. I've gotten a couple of questions and a couple of emails from listeners that have uh, started off with, this might be a stupid question, this might be a dumb question. There's no such thing. You, you don't know what you don't know. And if you have a question about something, chances are there's about a hundred other people out there that are listening to this podcast that have the same question. They just might be afraid to reach out. So email that to ghosthunteradvice at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer it on the air on the next listener question episode. And you don't have to wait that long. I will respond to the emails. I try to respond to every email that comes in within a couple of days. I am pretty busy, so sometimes it takes a couple of days to hear back from me. But you will get your answer. So let's go ahead and get into today's episode. Our first question is an email, and it comes from Mindy. Hello, I have recently just started listening to your podcast, and I am loving it. It's so helpful for a beginner, in, uh, excuse me, it's so helpful for beginner ghost hunters, and I'm enjoying the tips and information. But I was wondering about getting equipment. I'm not a skeptic in the paranormal, but I am a huge skeptic in the real world. Because the shows and the theatrics of ghost hunting lately, there's terrible people out there that are trying to cash in on it by fabricating fake equipment. So I'm really just wondering if there's any websites or shops out there to trust for, that you trust for real equipment. I have found ghost hunter, uh, ghoststop.com, and they seem legit. But I'm just wondering, excuse me, but so I just wondered that uh, I will be buying pre-programmed tools that are just novelty, like EMF meters that cycle through a set number to make it look like you're getting results, or K2s that just blink randomly. Any help would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. There's a lot in this email, and we're going to uh, to go through it, and I'm going to structure it the same way that uh, that I did when I emailed you back, Mindy. This um, This is actually... It's held me back from buying equipment, and it's held a lot of people that I know back from hiding uh, from from getting equipment. That yeah, there's there's always a possibility if you're buying from a source or you're buying from someone who doesn't have a uh, a long lasting or a trusted reputation in in ghost hunting or in the field that you're you're going to be buying fake equipment, so to say. There's uh, there's ghost tours. There's companies out there that take individuals into supposedly haunted locations with rigged K2 meters, rigged EMF meters, 
that basically are programmed to cycle through and give fake readings. There's also stuff hidden in walls, um, different speakers and things that are set up to, uh, to give fake EVPs, quote-unquote recording devices that have pre-programmed protocols to, uh, to, to give fake EVPs. Um, ghost boxes out there with a pro with with protocols programmed to give fake uh, fake results, and uh, pretty much all of the ghost hunting apps out there have something in them that will cycle through and will just give random answers to questions to uh, to make you question things because apps are for entertainment only. But there's also some equipment out there that's made for that. So let's start with uh, with getting good equipment. Now I I recommend people use K2s that. There's been some back and forth, and there's been people that um, that talk about how they don't trust the K2s because they'll blink randomly. Well, that's because they're the knockoffs. So if you were ordering a K2 meter, um, one place that I like to go, and I order all of my K2s from these guys, it is Ghost Augustine, and there'll be a link to them in the show notes. They have uh, verified and vetted authentic original K2 meters. Um, so it's not the cheap knockoffs. If you buy the uh, the ones that sell for like $20 and below, you're getting a knockoff K2 meter. They're not properly shielded. They're made with cheap components, and they just go off randomly. There's also some places that uh, have possibly rigged them. No one, I don't think, has been, been proven um, that that's going on, but I think we can all kind of agree that it is in some places. Anyway, you want the authentic K2s. The authentic K2s are going to be somewhere around 50 or $60. bucks. they are They're a bit more expensive. And again, the reason I go from Ghost Augustine is because they get the actual K2 meter. So there's that uh, on the K2. If you want one that's not just going to blink uh, randomly, make sure that you are buying the authentic original K2 meter or the, the K2 meter that's built by the original manufacturer, not an aftermarket or uh, a cheap, cheap knockoff from, from Hong Kong or China. With K2 meters, they, um, they're extremely low-frequency EMFs. So they're going to be set off by a lot. Your cell phone, uh, make sure that you have your phone off when you're using them because your cell phone will set off a K2 meter. Um, just be aware that they are designed to be set off by extremely low EMFs, which is why I like to use them for, for ghost hunting. Just make sure that you're using them properly. Um, you mentioned ghoststop.com in your email. That is actually where I buy most of my stuff. I've called them, I've talked to them, I've asked them questions about the um, the stuff that they have, I've actually talked to them about possibly coming on this podcast. Their stuff is great. They are not a sponsor of the show. The show currently doesn't have any sponsors outside of Anchor. But I love their stuff, and they are who I buy equipment from. I buy from Ghost Stop, and I buy from um, Ghost Augustine whenever I am buying specialized equipment that is made for the paranormal. Well, specialized equipment that is used and sold by a ghost hunting store that is marketing to the paranormal. I do trust those two locations. Moving on with, uh, with some of the other stuff, there's, there, there are meters like the Mel meters and the, uh, the EDI pluses. Those are legit. Those are simple EMFs with some other things that have um, a couple of other types of equipment on them or in them. And while they are built and fabricated specifically for ghost hunting, I have never had a problem using either of those two meters. Again, just make sure that you are buying the original. Make sure that you are buying the legit and not the bootleg version of these devices. When it comes to equipment that is being manipulated, your highest risk of buying fraudulent equipment is going to be an ITC. No? 
Okay, just to to clarify that, because I know a lot of people don't know what ITC is. That is instrumental transcommunication, and we're talking about things that allow for real-time communication with spirits, such as spirit boxes, ovelisk, any of the gadgets that we use to get like a two-way communication with spirits. Anyway, hope that clears it up. Back to the show. Okay. Because that's where they're able to program things for communication. So if you are looking to get a ghost box or a spirit box, I'd stick with the SB7. I do like the Ghost Stop S box. Devices um, that have canned responses, and I'm not going to name any specific devices, but the ones that just spit out pre-programmed words, there's some that have like 10,000 words, there's some with 5,000 words, but uh, basically they rely on a, an entity to send uh, an electrical charge through a sensor um, that triggers a word. And I don't know the exact voltage, but like let's say it pops a volt across the sensor and that's A, um, it pops 1.5 and that's, uh, that's Anna. Um, another voltage is, uh, is, is doorway. Those devices, one, in the theory, they are relying on a, a ghost or an entity that's never seen this device before to know how much of a, of a current to send across or how much voltage to, uh, to send across that sensor to create the word or to, uh, to choose that word. It also doesn't take into account sig uh, signal degradation, so maybe an entity knows how to do that. And they go to send four volts across. And I'm not a scientist. I'm just giving numbers. Um, four, four volts across the thing. And uh, they're, they're wanting to say alleyway, but uh, the signal degradation um, or the, 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 the diminished voltage that actually reaches the sensor is like 3.8 or something. And instead of saying alleyway, it says bobcat tail or, or something, something ridiculous like that. Those devices are the ones where you're going to have the highest risk for someone messing with them and programming them just to randomly spit out words or to, uh, to I've never heard of this, but to, to listen for you to ask a question and then give something that, uh, that is a, a, what would be considered a legitimate response. The theory with that seems kind of flawed to me, and the, um, the likelihood that uh, you're not actually getting true spirit communication is just too high. So I wouldn't use those. There's, there's, there's other ways. There's better ways to do that. So I would stay away from, from those types of devices and just stick with EVPs, spirit boxes that are using radio sweeping signals uh, that don't have any sort of canned responses or anything. And you're probably going to be fine. Another thing are the green light, red light, yes, no response systems. Those, I don't use them unless I make them just because there is a potential for something to either be done incorrectly or there's the uh, potential for it to be programmed in a way that it's just going to cause the green light to flash or cause the red light to flash. I haven't done enough testing with, uh, with those devices to really say, yes, I trust this one. No, I don't trust that one. Um, but with any piece of equipment that you get, test it. You can buy EMF meters. You can buy different devices that are not marketed to ghost hunters, that are not marketed for spiritual research or ghost hunting or psychic research. Use those and uh, test them against the stuff that is um, made for ghost hunting. With the Mel meters and the EDIs, that's what I did. I wanted to know how accurate the, um, the EMF meters were, so I used my Trifield meter, which was uh, originally made for, for finding electrical and, uh, and natural electromagnetic fields. 
I tested the two together. I did a ton of um, of just going through and looking for different things, and they, they worked great. Every once in a while, you're going to find something that works kind of wompy. I did the same thing with the Ghost apps, and they were nowhere near as accurate as as the EMF meters, and I got weird spikes where there weren't any because phones were not made to do that. The hardware is just not there. So remember, this wasn't actually an email, but apps are for entertainment. Get the hard physical equipment. Make sure that you are buying from a reputable source. There's a couple of places online, Ghost Stop and Ghost Augustine are my two favorites. There's also the ghosthunterstore.com. It's a, a really good place to, to get equipment from. When it comes to trigger devices, guys, you can build your own. Uh, there's, uh, there's a book that I talk about in a couple of podcasts called Strange Frequencies. There are plans online for uh, RIMPOD and uh, the static electricity devices that are, that are basically what's in the trigger devices. You can build those relatively cheaply, hook them up to a light source, pop them in a teddy bear, and you're good to go. You have a, a trigger mechanism. You can also do the same thing with EMFs, and uh, you can build basically like a small K2 and put it inside of a trigger device and make your own. And it's uh, it's yours. You know how it's built. It's relatively simple. There's not a lot to go wrong with it, and you're good to go. So you can uh, just do a mix. Get some equipment that's not, uh, not made for ghost hunting. Buy equipment that has a long and standing reputation in the field and, and test it. And just uh, just always be on the lookout as as ghost hunters, as paranormal researchers, we are we are always looking for an alternative solution. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes the solution to hauntings and sometimes the solution to uh, to equipment that's being presented to us is that it's uh, that it's fraudulent. It's kind of just part of it. But uh, Mindy, you're you're asking the right questions, and you're you're going at this with uh, with a mindset that I, I think you're going to do some pretty cool stuff, and I think you're gonna you're gonna go pretty far in this field. Just keep thinking like that and uh, and question everything. So our next question comes from uh, Christina. This actually came through the uh, through the Facebook page, the Messenger. Hi, my husband and I are currently listening to your podcast. We have found a few teams. Excuse me. We have had a few teams out to our house and had lots of activity. We finally found the courage to interact with whatever it is on our own. What EMF would you recommend, or if any other equipment, just uh, just to get us started? Doesn't need to be top of the line, just uh, for small per, uh, personal use. And also, do we need to do this at night? Can I provoke whatever it is to come out during the day? Thanks for any direction. So again, a couple of things going on in this. When it comes to an EMF for personal use or for being in your home, and specifically for communicating with and interacting with the spirit, I'm going to go back to that K2 meter. It's an extremely low-frequency EMF device. It's going to uh, pick up just about anything. Make sure that you have your cell phone off when you're using it, and uh, make sure that you don't have a lot of stuff going that could set it off, and make sure that you buy the original. It's, it's going to be about 50 to 60 bucks. It's, uh, it's not the most top of the line of the most, most expensive device that we use, but it is one of the most versatile EMF meters um, as far as you can use it to locate signals for debunking. You can use it for basic spirit communications by asking them to light up the lights to answer questions. And you guys might be hearing my cat come up behind me meowing for some reason, and she's gone. Uh, but the uh, the K2 meter can be used for just so many things. Uh, just make sure that you are getting a an authentic K2 meter. And I would, again, order that from um, Ghost Augustine. They they certify that it is the original. 
K2 meter, and that is the only place that I have ever bought a K2. Uh, the next part of the question, do you have to do it at night? No, absolutely not. A haunted location, that this varies uh, depending on if you have an intelligent haunting or a residual haunting because time of day does play into residuals, but for most hauntings, for most cases, they are active 24-7, and if you were going for communication, if you were trying to interact with something, you are going to be able to do that 24-7. The reason we ghost hunt at night, and there's, there's two reasons, um, one is it allows us to control more environmental variables. We control what kind of lighting is in the area, so we're able to use ultraviolet, we're able to flood the area with IR lighting, we're able to use visible lighting. It's also a lot quieter, so when we're doing recordings and we're doing stationary recordings, we're not picking up so much background noise, and uh, we can control who is in and out of the area a lot better when everyone else is asleep or when the house is empty or the, the, the property is empty at night. So the reason that we do a lot of investigations and a lot of stuff at night is just so that we have more control over the, uh, the setting of, of the area. Now, I do a lot of spirit communications, uh, EVP sessions, spirit box sessions during the daytime. They're as active, if not more active, uh, when it comes to communicating during the day. So you can do it at any time. Now, uh, there was a word that was used there, provoking whatever it is to come out during the day. When you are interacting with entities, especially if you were the one that lives there at the house, you want to know what they want, you want to come to terms with it, you want to live in peace with it, or you just want to communicate with the, uh, the, the entity that, uh, that you have there, be respectful. And this, this goes out to everybody because this, this is a common question. And, and watching ghost hunting shows, watching different things on, uh, online, people do provoke. They do hostile provoking, they poke it, and please, please remember that these entities are not here to perform. They're not here to perform on demand. They're not circus animals. That thing lives in your house with you, so when you're trying to, uh, to get it to interact with you, I recommend that you just have a conversation. Sit down with it, uh, or sit down with the, uh, the K2 meter or a simple voice recorder and just, uh, just talk. Have five or ten minute little bursts where you have a, an interaction, maybe you do yes or no questions with the, with the K2 meter. Another piece of equipment that you could use, because I know you were asking about other equipment, is just a regular voice recorder. Press the record button, let it run, and do this in like 10-minute spurts where you have one, uh, one side of a conversation. Maybe you ask questions. You wait 15 to 30 seconds. I wouldn't wait any more than that for the response to make it onto the recorder, and then you move on. Go back and review that and see if you have any answers. Getting them to, to constantly do things and to constantly do tricks is a drain. I have heard other investigators and other people that work at these locations where a lot of people come through and a lot of people investigate them because they're, they're public haunts and they do public hunts. There have been recordings and there have been spirit box communications from entities that are just burnt out, they're tired, and they're offended because everybody just wants them to jump through hoops. So uh, especially since you have to live there and you're with the entity, uh, just treat it with respect. All right. Next question is uh, actually from a live event we did the other day. I thought it was a, a great question. and wanted to make sure it was covered in this episode. And it was, do I have any standard EVP questions that I ask during a session with, uh, with EVPs or spirit boxes? The answer to that one is no. I don't have any standard questions. There's one that I like to ask a lot, and that is what year is it or who's the president, something about a current event, to get an idea of if that entity knows 
what decade it's in or if that entity, if the last decade they are aware of is the last decade that they were alive. So sometimes answers you get to that question when you ask what year is it, they'll say something like 1880 or 1990 or, or 1960, uh, 2002. And you can, you can go back and you might actually find death certificate. You might actually find information about a previous owner or someone who at that location died. And that's a great way to try to identify the entity. You can also ask for a name. A lot of times I have found that you get fake names. They don't necessarily give you the, uh, the actual name. But what year is it is a good one. Other than that, the questions are tailored to the entity. They're tailored to the, to the location. So when you go back through the history and when you're doing your uh, your preliminary investigation before you go out and you do the ghost hunt, before you go out and you do the, the investigation of the residence or the business, you're going to identify a couple of things that it could be. One, from statements from witnesses and from people that you have talked to. You'll have an idea of what they call the entity, who they believe it is. And uh, then going back through the property records and the history, you'll identify a couple of people that it could be, or you'll identify a couple of key things that happened there on the property. And I ask questions specifically about that. I'll ask about people that have been at the property. I'll ask about the preferences of the entity. And uh, people like to talk about themselves. Personalities, consciousness. I have found these things like to talk about themselves. Ask questions about them get them going, and then ask about things that specifically happened at that property that could help you identify the entity that you're talking to. Next question comes from Steve, and this was part of an email that he sent. Tanner, I have heard you say that uh, you put more stock in experiences uh, than EVPs and other recordings, but how can you say that a place is haunted without having uh, reviewable evidence to, to back it up? With this question, uh, and I'm going to call back on uh, my experience as a, as a personal trainer studying kinesiology and exercise science, also from, from psychology. There are two types of studies, um, and there are two types of approaches to scientific method or investigation or methods in exploration, and that is quantitative and qualitative. So quantitative data that we are getting during these investigations are going to be things like the EVPs, recordings of videos, energy fluctuations, environmental fluctuations like temperature, barometric pressure, those are things that we can physically touch, we can see it, and we can quantify it. And if I go into a location and I get uh, four or five EVPs, and these are EVPs that are not in response to a question, they're just randomly showing up on the recordings, we get strange energy fluctuations where we have random free-floating balls of electromagnetic energy or whatever's spiking on the EMFs, or we have these weird cold spots that are roaming around, I'll say that there's something there that needs further investigation, but I can't say that a place is haunted because there are explanations for EVPs that just show up. Um, there are explanations for random photos, and there are explanations for temperature variation. So in and of itself, the quantitative data does not make a place haunted or does not give me enough information to make a place haunted. On the other side, quantitative data. Quantitative data is, um, think of it as quality. What were your feelings? How did you feel while you were doing this? What did you see? What did you believe? What was, what was your experience? Basically, quantitative data is about the experience of the researcher, um, the experience of those involved in the experiment, or the experience of those involved in the event that you're studying. And studying a haunting and hunting ghost is an event. 
you're studying something that's happening, you're doing a mixture of trying to scientifically document it and trying to historically document it. So if I go into a house and a woman steps out of a wall and back into the wall and I check it, there's no trap door, there's no way to explain that, you turn around and you, you see apparitions, you see things moving out of the corner of your eye, you hear the footsteps and you, you have an experience, something touches you, something scratches you, something pushes you down, stuff starts moving around the house. If I just have that quantitative data, I can't explain how a lamp levitated across a room. I can't explain seeing, uh, seeing a man appear suddenly in a hallway and then fade out of sight. I can't explain a woman walking up, uh, seeming, a seemingly solid woman who was dressed in period clothes, walking up a stairway that no longer exists. I can't explain that. So yeah, I am, I am willing to say that that, uh, that is a haunting, even if I didn't get EVPs or recordings, which would be weird. Generally, if you are having experiences at a location, unless there is a, a malfunction with your equipment, you're going to get something. You're going to get some sort of weird breathing or an EVP. Could get something on the video, especially if stuff is moving. So if you have the, the qualitative data, if you have experiences at a location, chances are you're going to get the quantitative data and you're going to get the readings and you're going to get the EVPs and you're going to get the videos. Now, when we do ghost hunts, we don't just do one day. We go out and we spend, or when we do investigations, we go out and we spend time at these locations. So if somebody calls and they say their house is haunted, I'm going out there four or five times. If it's a location that I can, I'm going to stay out there for a week with, uh, with recorders going, with cameras going, doing multiple EVP, multiple spirit box, multiple types of ITC and, uh, and spirit communication to try to hammer down what is going on out there while I'm doing the, uh, the research. And that is going to be going night and day, especially if it's a haunting that really, really needs to be looked into or their activity that has to be looked into. So if you were doing all of that, if you have the experiences, if you have the, the qualitative data, the quantitative data will most likely come. Ideally, I like to have both to say a place is haunted. If I just have the quantitative, I, I won't say that a place is haunted. I'll say that it's interesting that there's, there could be something there. But if I just have qualitative, yeah, I'll, I'll say that a place is haunted. And uh, I'll keep investigating until I get the quantitative data. Steve, hope that answers your question. That's something I've been wanting to talk about for a minute. Qualitative and quant uh, quantitative data in, uh, in investigations. When we talk about scientific method, and we, when we talk about doing this in a way that is measurable, a lot of us really get stuck on the quantitative, and a lot of teams completely overlook the, uh, the qualitative data, and they, they write it down as interesting stories, but they don't factor it in into, uh, into the, the reveal or into the, um, the findings that are presented when they, when they go across. In psychology, exercise science, the, the, the types of, of science that I have, I've actually studied academically, those are two things that, uh, that work hand in hand. If you have qualitative data, if you have the numbers, if you have the hard part of the science down, but you don't have the quantitative, you don't know how people feel, you don't know how the experience was for the person that was going through whatever you were putting them through. And again, this is kinesiology and psychology. If you don't have that qualitative feedback, then you have an incomplete study. Anyway, moving on, this is our last question. This comes from Sarah. Sarah asks, what's the best resource for locating past property owners and how do I approach them once I found them? 
Oh, I love this one. Um, so historical research is uh, something that I absolutely love. This is another thing, and this kind of straddles qualitative, quantitative data. Whenever you are looking for past property owners, the, the first place I look is the tax records. So whatever municipality you're in, generally this is going to be at county level. Sometimes it's at city level. The tax assessor's office has, in most places online, um, the, the history of the property. So I am going to do a search of the of the property by the address. I'm going to try to find the parcel number. You might find the, the current owner, and then um, you'll find that at the uh, at the property assessor's office, and then you'll also look through the tax records. Most of the places in the tax records, they have who paid the taxes going back to the 90s. Around here, I think it goes back to the 80s, but that is uh, where I find the bulk of people that have lived at a property, or excuse me, the people that have owned a property. Once I have those names, yeah, I can go on social media and look for them. Um, you can also use something like Been Verified. The White Pages is a good free resource that gives you some information. When you're going through there and it gives you like an address history on them, you can look for that address to pop up or look for some association to make sure that you've got the right person because you're going to have those two points of data and you want them to, uh, to correlate whenever you're trying to identify them. And you should be able to, uh, using that, find a phone number or an email address or an address and find a way to contact them. If you call them and the phone that uh, the phone number that you found for them on those online resources ends up not being connected to them, try the email address and go through and shoot off emails until you find that correct person. A lot of the times on these systems, it'll give you three or four email addresses. Shoot one off to all three of those. If the email gets bounced back, maybe the, the email is not good anymore, not valid anymore. You can also use those email addresses to search social media to try to find that individual and make contact with them through, uh, through social media. Or last uh, ditch effort, if you find an address that looks like a, a good address for them in those systems, a lot of time this is a, the, the data on, on these particular sites is six months to a year old, so they, they could have moved. Shoot a letter and uh, see if it makes it to that person to see if you uh, if you can get a response. A lot of people aren't going to want to talk to you, so you might not get a response back. But basically, just keep going at it. And if you don't find it on one system, try another one. A lot of what I do during my day job is just continuously going down rabbit holes and hitting dead ends until I don't hit a dead end and I find what I'm looking for. And you're just going to have to be tenacious, and you're going to have to dig through it. This takes time. It takes a lot of time to dig through and and locate people. And a lot of times you're going to find out that at one point the uh, the property was rented. You can also talk to neighbors if uh, if that's okay with the person that you're doing the investigation for, if this is a residential investigation. Talk to neighbors, see if they can identify people that used to live there. If it was a rental property, see if the past owners uh, remembered who they, they rented it to or if they heard any stories. And uh, you're looking for stuff that matches up to uh, to what was what was seen by the people that are there now or any, any weird activity in general, but what you're really looking for is, is stuff to correlate with what's being reported by your client. How do you approach them once you've found them? So, okay, you've, you, you've done the, the tax records. Um, you've gone through, been verified. You can also do reverse ad, uh, address lookups. It'll give you a list of people that have been associated with the, uh, with the address using uh, white pages, been verified. Just Google reverse address lookup, and there's a couple of different things that pop up there so you can get some leads there. So you've gone through and you, you're ready to start calling people. The best way that I have found to get people to actually want to interact with you is just to ask for help. So if you call in and uh, you're just wanting to hear spooky stories 
they're probably not going to help you. If you call in and, I, and I'm like, hi, uh, my name's Tanner, and I'm looking into something for uh, the current homeowner, homeowner of, uh, of a house on maybe say the road, maybe say the name. Are, are you the David Springer that used to uh, live at the house on so-and-so road? And uh, they'll either tell you yes or they'll tell you no. If they say yes, you say, well, I'm a paranormal investigator. The current homeowners are experiencing some some strange things in the house, and I'm trying to uh, trying to find out what's going on and trying to find out a way to help them. And I, I need your help. While you were there at the house, was there was there anything that happened with you? Uh, was there anything you experienced that could help me shed light on it? And sometimes the uh, the conversation is going to go in a way that is non-paranormal. Sometimes it's going to go in a way that is paranormal. Um, but just take your time when you are talking to these people and ask them for help because most people actually want to be helpful. And that's my advice for, uh, for talking to people. Down the road, we are actually going to do a full episode on interviewing techniques and how to get people to be a little bit more compliant and, uh, and how to get information from them when you need it to help your clients. But, uh, and that'll, that'll be a fun episode. I, I love forensic interviewing and uh, the techniques of uh, just talking to people. I, I just enjoy talking to people. I, uh, well, I have a podcast. That's one reason. All right. So uh, that about does it for this listener question episode. If you have questions that you need answers to, whether you are a ghost hunter or someone who is experiencing hauntings, please email those to ghosthunteradvice at gmail.com. Join the Ghost Hunter Advice Facebook group and make sure to uh, ask your questions there to have them answered on air. All right, I am out of here and I will see you on next week's episode of the Ghost Hunter Advice Podcast.